Welcome back my fellow peanuts and welcome to anyone who is new to my channel or this podcast. Now this podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for young listeners. Uh, there may be graphic and violent content. Listener discretion has been advised. Now I think most of you are going to be aware of my next serial killer. I think he's rather infamous. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary on him and some pretty awful made-for-TV movies. Uh, Hulu also featured an episode of Wild Crimes on him and we have it on Disney Plus here um, if anyone is interested to go and watch it. But our next date for this episode is going to be Texas and our serial killer is Henry Lee Lucas. Now I'm also going to be mentioning Otis Tool. So we might feature two serial killers on this podcast or I may do a follow-up on Otis Tool. There is a great deal of information on Henry so let's get straight into it. Now Henry Lee Lucas was born on August 23rd, 1936 in Blackburg, Virginia. Now he was born in a log cabin. It's been reported that this log cabin was a one bedroom um, or a one room, but I'm not really sure. Now he would be the youngest of nine children. His mother would be Nellie Viola Lucas. She would prefer to be called Viola. Uh, she would be described as sadistic and cruel and she would make a living as a prostitute, but she would be the main breadwinner of the household. Now, the reason why she would be the main breadwinner is because Henry's father, Anderson, he would lose both of his legs. Now, it's been reported that he was drunk and passed out on the train tracks and a freight train ran over them. Now, quite aptly, he was nicknamed no legs. Now, he'd be an alcoholic and would contribute to the family's money by selling pencils and bootleg whiskey during the Prohibition period. I don't think anything I've read or seen over this coming serial killer is something I'd ever want to endure again, I've got to say. There are some conflicting stories, but I think I've managed to sort through most of the weeds. Unfortunately, Lucas or Henry Lucas, he really didn't stand a chance of having a normal childhood given who his parents were and what was really coming over the next coming years. His half-siblings would be in and out of foster care, but he and his brother were unfortunately the lucky ones and they were to stay with their parents. His mother, Viola, she would entertain her clients in the same room that her children and her husband slept in and sometimes her children would even be in the same room at the same time and he would say that he had been forced to watch um, or his mum would actually threaten to beat him. His dad, Anderson, would be forced to watch as well. Uh, he could do little to help his son given he was drunk most of the time and handicapped. There are reports that Viola would beat him so badly that he would be in a coma for days. I'm not sure that this is true, but either way, there are reports of her abuse and what can only be described as something a child should have never had to endure. And one report that has been proved, proved to be true is that he would have a glass eye. Now, this was due to a fight during uh, with his brother involving a knife. Um, it would be left to fester and ultimately end in an infection and this would result in the loss of the eye and also his sight and be replaced with a glass eye. He would help his dad with the production of the bootleg whiskey. Uh, it's also been reported that it was moonshine. Uh, neither really matters, but it would be considered one of his house chores. Henry was told by his dad that he could take sips 
Uh, this would lead to him basically being an alcoholic by the time he was 10 years old. I'm guessing this was a way for him to deal with his childhood. Now, guys, we've spoken so much about this in previous podcasts, just the fact that these serial killers and the childhoods they had to endure and the ways in which they found to cope through all of this. It doesn't surprise me that it was a negative way to deal with these things because at the end of the day, you're a child. You really don't know how to deal with these complex emotions that you're currently going through. So I can only imagine when it came to this level of abuse, and I'm really, I'm coaxing over a lot of it. Like um, I don't think we need to hear about all the beatings and all of the enduring things that he had to go through. So him developing a habit of becoming an alcoholic, it doesn't really surprise me at all. Now, another really disgusting experience for Henry was that his mum would dress him up as a girl, down to the dress and down to curling his hair, and she'd send him to school like this. We've seen this previously with another Henry, uh, Henry Lewis Wallace. I don't know if it's true, but it's also been said that she would sexually assault him and would allow her clients to do so as well. We've seen this so commonly in the podcast previously, so it's not something I'm too surprised. And given her mothering instincts, it really wouldn't surprise me. She would even take away any happiness that he had. I've got a really horrid example of this. His uncle would give him a pet mule and she would end up killing his pet and then beat him because she had to pay for the mule to be taken away. Just another really disgusting example of the parenting that he had to endure. Now, the teachers at his school, they would say that he was seriously disturbed uh, and he looked like he constantly needed a bath and a good feed. And he would also have learning difficulties on top of that. So he really had to endure all of this before basically the age of 12. His father would die when he was barely a teenager. He would die from hypothermia um, after he passed out in the middle of a blizzard. There would be claims, though, that he had a sexual relationship with his brother and bestiality. And just to add a little bit more on top of that is there was apparently some animal torture. I wouldn't be surprised if this was true. I just don't have any actual facts. I only have allegations and claims. Now, Henry would originally begin stealing so his family could eat, but it would be something he continued doing his criminal, throughout his criminal life. But we're going to return to that throughout the podcast. You're going to hear examples of it. And Henry claimed, and I do say claimed here because it's never proven to be true. Shortly after his father's death, he said he killed a 17-year-old girl by the name of Laura. Now, he would attempt to rape her, but he would fail. And then he would strangle her as a result of the reason for he, he wasn't able to perform. He would confess to her murder. Um, when he'd been caught, so in the 1980s, but her body would never be found. A direct quote from Henry during his confession would be, it scared me quite a bit, the pressure of seeing my mum hit me and my emotions more or less took over. I couldn't quite handle it. He would later recant this confession, but something of this rings a little bit true for me. Being that everything he had experienced that level of control that he never had, obviously, during his childhood. So I imagine for him, 
this first murder gave him a taste of the violence, gave him a taste of, you know, control and that need to be in control because he lacked so much of it during his childhood. And so sometime in 1954, he would be arrested and convicted of breaking and entering. He'd be sent to the Beaumont Training School for Boys in Virginia. Um, I've got that up on screen. I think this is what it was, but I'm just not sure. But it's a training school for boys in Virginia. Now, during his time there, there would be claims again of a sexual relationship with another boy. Uh, but it would, we also said that he was disruptive and he'd attempt to escape numerous amounts of times. Now, he would be in and out of jail over the next four to five years. Now, once he was out, Henry would move to Michigan and he'd live with his half-sister Opal and he'd meet a lovely little woman by the name of Stella and he'd become engaged to her. His mum, Viola, would actually come to visit and she really disapproved of this engagement. She'd attempt to demand that Henry call off the engagement and leave Stella just to look after her. She would complain that she was getting older and that she needed someone to move back in with her and look after her. Uh, Stella would witness this fighting and how violent it could actually become between his mum and himself. Now, she promptly ended that engagement after seeing what it, would been, what it had been like between the two of them. Smart girl. So she had some pretty good instincts. Now, one night in particular after this, Henry and his mum, they'd be continually fighting. He'd storm out of the apartment to go and clear his head. Now, then he would come back and things would escalate really, really quickly and become quite violent. Now, according to Henry, his mum would attack him with a broom first, repeatedly, repeatedly hitting him over the head with it, and he'd retaliate by stabbing her in the neck. He actually thought he had killed his mum at this stage and he'd flee because he didn't want to go back to jail. She wouldn't die for another 48 hours. She was only discovered when Opal would return home and see her mum bleeding on the floor. She'd immediately call an ambulance, but to no avail. She would still end up dying. The official police report did say that she died of a heart attack as a result of the, attack or the fight between her and Henry. Henry would be soon found, though, in Toledo, Iowa, and he'd be sent back to Michigan to face charges of second-degree murder. He'd plead guilty and he'd be sentenced to 20 to 40 years in the state prison in southern Michigan. During his time in jail, it was not, it was not a great experience. This is where he would start to complain about starting to hear voices. Now, these voices would torment him day and night. He would be transferred to the Iona. Um, I think it is Iona. I apologize if that's not correct. Iona State Hospital because of his two attempts at suicide. He would attempt to slit his wrists and his stomach with a razor blade. Over the next four years in that state hospital, he'd have electric shock therapy, a dosage of antidepressants, and this really didn't seem to help him at all. Reports actually do say that it made him even more mad and even more violent. So he'd even mentioned to a therapist and to the prison that he would kill again if he was ever released. He'd be transferred back to the prison where he would actually use this time to become a better criminal. And one of the things he would study specifically was how not to get caught. Now, what he would take away from those learnings specifically was that you need to keep moving across the country after each offence. So move from state line to state line because they can't catch you if they don't know who you are. 
So after only serving 10 years of that 20 to four year sentence, he would be released early due to prison overcrowding. But just 12 months, not even 12 months after his release, he'd be back in jail. And this time it would be an attempted kidnapping of a teenage girl and being in possession of a gun while on parole. He would serve those four years and after being after being released, he'd marry a Betty Crawford. Now she would be a widow of one of his family members. He'd move across state lines, mixed messages. Some of them say Maryland and some of them say Pennsylvania, but he would move in with her and her children. He'd drift from job to job. The marriage didn't last very long at all. I don't exactly have a timeline of what it was, um, but Betty would end up accusing him of molesting her daughters. Now, he'd deny that and he'd even tell her he planned on leaving her. Um, And this is where we really start to see Henry begin his travels and moving across state lines and going from state to state. But while he was in Florida, he would meet a man by the name of Otis Toole. These two were a match made in hell. Otis, before meeting Henry, was already a suspect in four murders across the U.S., shootings in Nebraska and Colorado and two stabbings in Colorado. Otis Toole was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1947. He had a really similar childhood to Henry, and I think I could do a podcast on him alone. His story is actually incredibly sad before he became a monster. So once again, we're seeing a pattern. Otis's father was an alcoholic and he'd abandoned his family and Otis would end up being raised by his mum. He'd be dressed up as a girl as well, but this time it would be his sister who would assist and he would also claim that his family members sexually assaulted him when he told them he was gay. Uh, Otis would also say that his mum was an abusive religious fanatic and that his grandma was a Satanist who taught him about self-mutilation and grave robbing. He'd also have an IQ of 75, be diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. Allegedly around the age of 14, he would say this is when he committed his first murder. He would say that he killed a travelling salesman who had picked him up for sex and Tool would run over him with a car. Adding further complications to his askew psyche, he'd also be a serial arsonist. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what a serial arsonist is, it's actually someone who gets sexual gratification from lighting fires. So he had a pretty messed up childhood. He was already well on his way to becoming a pretty disgusting human being, and then he meets up with Henry. Now, you'll just have to excuse me. I'm just going to take a cup, a sip of my cup of tea. That's my new um, cup with all of the Snoopy and the peanuts. And happiness is a warm puppy. I do quite like that. Anyway, (laughs) returning to our podcast. So meeting in Florida sent both of these serial killers on a path of really a deadly destruction. Now, apparently they travelled together between 1978 and 1982. Otis would introduce Henry to his family and they would live with Otis's family for periods of time during their escapades, we'll call them. Now, he would be intro- Henry would be introduced to Frida Becky Powell, who was just 11 when she would very first meet him, and they would grow really close. We're going to be discussing Betty, uh, Becky in more detail shortly. Now, during the time that Tool and Lucas were together, they travelled from state to state. Supposedly, it was 26. I don't have all of those states, but apparently it was 26. 
Unfortunately for hitchhikers, they would be their favourite victims for these two, females for Henry and males for Otis. They'd rob, steal and kill their victims allegedly. Henry would say that he would educate Otis on murder to avoid detection and according to Henry, Otis was really good at taking directions and orders. They certainly flew underneath the radar, so they must have been doing something right. Now, in a combination where you've got two serial killers, there's always someone who's more the submissive and there's always a, always a serial killer who's more dominant. I'd have to say in this combination that Otis would have been the submissive and Henry would have been the dominant. There are multiple reports that they were involved in a sexual relationship. However, I have not been able to confirm that uh, through facts or anything like that. But it is certainly, um, it wouldn't surprise me uh, because it would allow Henry to dominate and educate or what's the word I'm looking for? Just be more pliable with Otis. Otis would be more pliable if they were in a relationship. Um, the next part of our podcast, it's not confirmed, so I'm not really willing to give it too much airtime. They were allegedly in a cult called the Hand of Death. Now, the claims included they killed children as a sacrifice of Satan. And during their time in the cult, they supposedly learned to use rape as a form of punishment and a murder as a part of the cult's overall plan. I'm not willing to really give it much airtime, guys. It hasn't been confirmed, so I don't want to I don't want to harp on it too much. For a while when they're on the road, Otis's niece, Becky, who we mentioned before, and his nephew, Frank, would actually join them. Now Becky had been diagnosed with mild retardation and was really desperate for kindness and companionship. As her family life, it wasn't all that great. Now she'd get all of these things from Henry. In her eyes, he was someone really special. She would boost his self-esteem and he would say that she was the first person that made him feel important. Now, in her eyes, she would say that he treated her like a princess and that she was special and the best thing in her life. They would begin a relationship when Becky and a sexual relationship at that when she was only 12. He would claim that he was in love with her, but I think it what he was really in love with was that control and felt like she believed and accepted all really bad parts of him. I think being that Becky was so young, she would have been able, very similar to the relationship he's got with Otis, right? They're just more pliable and that control he can, they concede really quickly, they don't fight him, they make him feel good. So it's that whole narcissistic wanting to be, Good, but not be good, if that makes any sense. Now, in 1981, Otis's, Otis's Tool's mum died and Becky, Otis and Henry had been staying in her home at the time and so they needed to find a new place to live. All three of them, they'd end up driving and roaming around through multiple states and stealing and committing petty crimes to get by and get money. But Lucas wanted Becky all to himself, so he would leave Otis behind. This really angered him apparently and he was quite severe and it actually sent him on a really big spiral. He would allegedly kill nine people over six states over the course of the next year. He would, Otis would end up being caught in Florida burning a building and he'd be sentenced to 20 years. Now this is the end of the Henry and Otis story for now but we are going to, he's going to come up again. 
So once they'd left Otis behind to start a new life, Henry and Becky, they would end up in Texas. Now he'd get a job working for a really lovely lady by the name of Kate Rich. They would be kicked out by neighbours and relatives when they discovered that they'd been cashing checks in the name of Kate. I'm not sure if Becky was doing this or this was just Henry. The reason I say this is it's going to come up a little bit later, but Kate and Becky became friends. So I'm not sure that she was involved in that at all. Now, the married couple would then move on to the house of prayer. The head of this group was Reuben Moore, and he would even let the couple stay in a trailer. <clears throat> and he would give Henry odd jobs around so that he could make some money. But Becky was really growing tired of this nomadic lifestyle, and she wanted to return desperately to her family in Florida. Henry didn't want her to leave. Now, he feared that if she went back to her family, that that relationship would end. I mean, surely a man in his 30s or 40s having a relationship with a 12-year-old, of course the family's going to say, uh-uh. But, <clears throat> yeah. During their time on the road, though, he'd stolen a truck while he was in Florida. So there was a warrant out for his arrest. But Becky refused to actually give in. She cried, she pounded, and he would eventually just say, all right, fine, we'll head back. One night, though, while he and Becky would start arguing again because he was trying to convince her again to stay with him, it seems like she was growing a little bit more annoyed. She'd slap him during this, during this particular argument and this would lead to Henry only getting even more mad and he would stab her straight in the chest and in his own words during his confession, he would say, she was gone before I knew it. The next part is going to be really horrific, guys. So here's a trigger warning to all of our listeners. He would actually rape her corpse. And the most appalling part of this is he would say during his confession that that was the best sex he'd ever had with her. Necrophilia is really not uncommon with the serial killer community. I think this is possibly the first one we've discussed, though, on my podcast. So, but we'll possibly get into that later, won't we? Now, fearing that her body would be found, he would remove her head, dismember her body, and she'd end up in nine pieces in total. He's a truly, truly repulsive killer because he'd scatter her body in a nearby field, dump her belongings on the way, and this is meant to be a person he loved, and this is the way that you would treat someone you love, but I really dread to know how he would treat someone that he hated. His mum didn't even receive that kind of treatment. Now, he would end up returning back to Texas to the House of Prayer and he'd tell Reuben that Becky had left him and the last time he'd seen her, she was getting into a truck and that he was really heartbroken. I do think he was heartbroken, but this is of his own undoing. His heartbreak is really, it's your own undoing. So about three weeks after Becky's murder, Kate Rich, the lovely 80-year-old who'd given Becky and Henry a home to stay and work, Kate was really growing concerned about where Becky was and her disappearance. She's asking a lot of questions. And in the period of time that Becky and Kate knew each other, they'd grown really close. And I suspect that Becky had told Kate a lot of what was going on and what their relationship was like. Because I do think she thought something was slightly amiss. But I don't think she suspected it was anything to do with Henry. Uh, because she actually agreed to go with him, to go and look for Becky. This was another pretense, though, because he would end up picking her up and they'd start heading north for Oklahoma 
And she didn't seem to really question the direction that they were headed because obviously you can um, east or southeast to go back to Florida. But Henry would say that Kate had badgered him and too many questions and he was just getting really annoyed. So he'd drive just down a small dirt road and he'd use a butcher knife that was in his car. Clearly he had a plan in place or he just had it in his car for emergency situations. I'm not too sure. But he would stab her and he would also rape Kate's corpse. He'd put her body and her clothes in a nearby drainage pipe. Now he'd push her and her belongings until he thought it couldn't be seen. He just didn't want her to be found. So from the road, you just making sure you couldn't see anything. Now he would return to the church and he would tell anyone that asked that Kate, um, he'd gone to get it and she really wasn't feeling very well. So he would leave her at home. And given her age, people really, they did initially believe him. He'd flee Texas for a period of time as he thought it would be best to put some distance between him him in Texas and the dead bodies. Um, but when he returned to Texas and to the house of prayer, he'd actually learned that he was a suspect in the disappearance of Becky and Kate. And just another trigger warning, guys, he would return to where he had stashed Kate's body and remove her body and place it in garbage bags and return to the house of prayer where he would burn her remains in a stove. So, Again, guys, just a really appalling human being. But in June 1983, his luck really ran out because almost a year after those murders, uh, he would be arrested in possession of a firearm. But what the Texas Rangers really wanted to know was information on Kate Rich and Becky Powell. Apparently, Lucas was held in a jail cell, uh, jail, <laughs> a jail cell for days was held without his coffee and his cigarettes so he'd admit pretty quickly to killing both the women the investigators actually didn't have any idea that becky was dead and henry would claim later that the only reason he confessed to those crimes was due to the unfair treatment from the texas rangers saying that they were cruel and torturing him but once he confessed the investigation would begin They'd find human bone fragments and burnt flesh in the stove at the house of prayer. But he also told them about that drainage pipe that where Kate was initially and some glasses were found there and they would be identified as Kate's by family members. Now, in that case, he would be charged with first degree murder. Henry would then take the Texas Rangers uh, to the location of Becky's body and would go into some pretty horrific graphic detail about what he'd done to her just shocking to the texas rangers what they heard so skeletal remains were found to be those of a white girl around the same height and age of becky powell uh, he would once again be charged with murder now it was during the arraignment that he would shock the judge in the courtroom with this admission i killed kate rich and at least a hundred more. The next part of our podcast, if you do want to go into more depth and look into it, I really strongly recommend you going and watching The Confession Killer on Netflix. It goes into a bucket load of information and detail. I could do a podcast alone on all of it, to be honest, because there's just so much of it. But I don't think I need to, given that there's such an amazing TV show that can showcase it all and what he did. 
But before we get into the next part, I want you guys to know that he received a 75-year sentence for Kate Rich's murder and a life sentence for Becky's. At the end of the podcast, we're going to go through the victims that he was convicted of and the victims he's also suspected of killing. Before I begin, though, I do want to say that I think that Henry Lee Lucas was a serial killer and that he did unspeakable things with Otis Toole. And I just don't genuinely believe, though, that the numbers he talks about, that he actually killed it, killed to that extent. I just hope, though, for one day for the victims' families that the killers are caught and justice is provided for those victims. Okay, so we're going to continue on. Uh, So after the trial um, sentencing for Henry Lee Lucas, he realised that admitting and talking about his crimes would get him out of the jail cell. So the Texas Rangers would create a task force to deal with the amount of crimes that Henry was admitting to, and he'd offer up the names of the victims, mainly women, across many states. Throughout these confessions, though, they'd be more and more graphic and more and more chilling, and the murders would include things like dismemberment, necrophilia, and even cannibalism. One might seem that it could be a little bit unbelievable of what he was doing. Policemen and lawmen would come over from all over the country. They'd request meetings with Henry to investigate their unsolved murders. They'd request saliva, blood, pubic hairs and fingerprints. The victims he would confess to would be predominantly picked up on the side of the interstate or a highway and he'd offer them a ride or a bite to eat. Now, this would be proved fatal if he is telling the truth. And during one of his many interviews, he would implicate that Otis Tool would be his partner and they would often kill together. Now, Otis was then interviewed while he was in his jail cell in Florida and he would corroborate anything and everything that Henry had said they do. And one might say it started out like a bit of a competition between those two as to who was the bigger monster. The confession killer, again, goes into a great deal of information about it, so feel free to go and watch if you do want to know more. Otis would tell investigators, and I'm quoting directly here, we picked up lots of hitchhikers. Lucas killed most of the women himself, and some of them would be choked to death and some would be beat to death with a tire tool. He would also claim that when he dressed up like a woman, he'd get them more victims. And I'm, I'm assuming here that the reason this was the case is because a couple is far less imposing than two men in a car, right? That's just my thoughts, but I don't think I'd get in a car with two men. But I would be inclined to get in with a, with a married couple. Like I would think, oh, yeah, well, that's going to be safe. Now, by the in, end of this investigation, right, the claim would be that Henry killed around 600 people. Now, this is including also his time with Otis, and the task force could link these two men to 81 murders over 19 states, and many many of these cases would be closed as a result. And from the articles and the documentaries I've read and watched, at least two of these have proven to be false confessions, and the murders have been linked through DNA to another killer. Now, it's hard to really pull apart fact from fiction when someone is saying it, right? But when it's black and white like that, you do realise that he and Otis did trick a lot of people and law people. 
And though Henry would claim and allege that he'd been given the details of the murders beforehand and was able to confess because he knew the ins and outs, I don't know if half of that is true. I don't know enough. And as I said, the confession killer, it, it really delves into it and it does a really, really good, good job. So I would suggest if you do want to know a little bit more, go and have a listen. Um, there's a couple of really decent podcasts. I can put it in the comments. I'm more than happy to put, provide that information if you guys want that. One of the victims Henry would confess to is Orange Socks. Now, she would remain unidentified until 2019, where we would finally learn her name, and that's Deborah Louise Jackson. Now, she was aptly named Orange Socks because when she was found, she was found nude, in every, in, in, but the only thing appearing on her was her orange-red socks. Now, this trial would end in him receiving his only death sentence, but it would be solely based, really, on his confession. Now, before they went to trial, he recanted that confession. And the defence would actually present some really great and some really compelling evidence, in my opinion. It was including proof that he wasn't even in Texas at the time. He'd been working in Florida. He picked up his paycheck. Um, they did a timeline, like they did a drive, and they said it was plausible, but not like it's literally you had to drive day and night and not stop. So seems a little bit suspect to me. And unfortunately for Henry, though, his confession, false or not, it proved to be his downfall because the jury would find him guilty and they'd give him the death penalty. Now, even though he, can, he recanted his confession of orange socks, and let's, you know what, let's be honest, let's call her by her name, Deborah, uh, he would confess to even more murders. And I think the reason he did this was not only for the notoriety, but also because he didn't have to sit in, sit in his jail cell on death row. When you're sitting there for 20 three hours a day and you're allowed to be out for an hour. So, of course, you're going to sit there and talk about nothing. Now, he would be charged with seven more murders and this would lead to seven more life sentences. If you do want to, again, watch the documentary, um, it does go a lot of back and forth on his confessions, but it gives you a bit of a better understanding. I'm not sure personally that he didn't kill more than three people and that would be his mum. Kate Rich and Becky Powell, but given his childhood and what he did to the victims we know about, I do suspect he committed more murders. He knew things that only a killer would, um, but he's telling us that the police told him and they were just so desperate to solve crimes. I'm not sure that he's guilty of the eight victims that he was convicted of, but I'm sure there are some proper victims out there. It's things we'll never really know our answers to, right? But on June 26, 1998, Texas Governor George Bush commuted Lucas's death sentence to life imprisonment because an investigation by the Attorney General of Texas determined that Lucas could not have killed her and Lucas is the only death row inmate to receive a clemency from Governor Bush, and it is President Bush. Um, so former President Bush, I should say, sorry. Now, Lucas was ultimately convicted of 11 homicides, including those of his mother, along with Becky Powell and Kate Rich. And on March 2001 at 11pm, uh, he was found dead in prison from congestive, uh, con congested heart failure at 64. Now, he's been buried in Texas. Um, again, a murder too quick, uh, a murder too quick, sorry, a death too quick. For a murderer and I truly believe he didn't 
get what he just so justly deserved. Now, these are the victims that Henry's been convicted of in total. Now, he was convicted of 11 murders, including the deaths of Viola Lucas, Becky Powell, and Kate Rich. The other eight victims that Lucas was convicted of, um, we're going to go into that now. There's a 26-year-old teacher, Linda Jane Phillips. She disappeared in August 1970 in Dallas, uh, a small suburb by the name of Richardson. Uh, she'd been returning from a party at her parents' home and he, her mutilated body was found on August 10th and she had sustained 26 stab wounds and had been sexually abused. Now, he would confess to the murder and claimed he'd forced her off the road at about 2.30 and then he allegedly forced her by gunpoint into her car and he made her disrobe and then stabbed her in the throat and the chest and the stomach. The body of a patrolman, Clemming Everett Curtis, 30, uh, he was found in August 1976. Now he'd been handcuffed to his patrol car in a wooded area just outside of Huntington in West Virginia, and he'd been shot through the chest once. Now he claimed that Otis and himself had killed the patrolman. Lily Pearl Darty in 18, she accepted a ride from Lucas in 1977 at a gas station uh, in Harrison County and she was later found sexually assaulted and shot in the head. Her decomposing body was found three weeks later in a wooded area of Marshall, Texas. 23-year-old Deborah Louise Jackson, otherwise known as Orange Socks, when, under, when she was unidentified, is believed to have been murdered around October 30th or 31st, 1979 in Georgetown, Texas. Now, her body was found naked except for the pair of orange socks. Um, she'd been strangled and was believed to have died only hours before the discovery. This one's a little bit peculiar. In 1981, Lucas allegedly broke into the apartment of a babysitter by the name of Diana Lynn Bryant in Brownfield, Texas, with the intent of robbing. He then took a knife and he carried it around, um, he carried it, sorry, he then took out a knife that he carried and cut a cord on the vacuum cleaner and she, he'd use it to strangle her. Now, her father was satisfied with the confession and the case was closed. Glenna Faye Biggers was found by a neighbour in 1982 in Hale County, Texas, and a butcher's knife had been thrust into her stomach and a fork into her throat. Now, this was another time where he broke into a home and he killed her and he stole around $200. Laura Marie Purchase now, she was 26 years old and she'd been discovered in 1983, dead and in a burning wooded area near Montgomery County in Texas. She'd been reported missing from Houston uh, two or three weeks beforehand and it was determined that she'd been sexually assaulted and strangled. But in 2008, it would, DNA would rule out Lucas. Um, another man has actually been charged with her murder. On eight, in April 1983, 16-year-old Laura Jean Dunas, she skipped school and she was never, ever seen again. Um, an oil field worker spotted a fire burning in a 
nearby area, uh, just off a logging road, she'd been strangled, raped and beaten um, and her body had been burned to death. Now, he would confess to her murder and that would actually lead police to where her body had been discovered. So I do suspect that one in particular, he did actually do because he led the police to where her body was. Now, almost all of his confessions have been discredited or they've been proven to be false. Um, there's definitely, I would say, some compelling evidence that they definitely did kill people, um, but the ones that they've admitted to and 600 women, like I just, I yeah, I absolutely do not believe. But the next ones are definitely a little bit more believable and possibly they are suspects. Sorry, not possibly are suspects, they are suspects. In 1977, detectives responded to a wooded area just outside of Delaware after the remains of a 50-year-old Marie Petrie was discovered in an open field. Now, she had suffered blunt force trauma to her head and she'd really fought back against, against, against them. Now, this was when Henry was living in Maryland and investigators would find things in his writing that implicated him certainly in that murder because he talked about uh, that crime scene in particular. So 45-year-old Stella Ellen McLean, uh, she disappeared in Nebraska in 1978. Now, her headless body was discovered in Wyoming. She'd been raped and strangled, and unfortunately, her head has never been discovered. But in 1984, Jim Larson, an investigator from a Sheriff's Department in Nebraska, he questioned Henry about her murder. Um, he asked him deceptive questions to test out whether Henry was telling the truth, and he would end up with some testimony about things about that murder that no one else knew. So definitely a viable suspect as far as I'm concerned. Now, Janet Lee Kellys, she would be last seen again in Nebraska. Uh, in 1984, he would confess to her murder and stated that he and Otis had actually killed together and they'd buried her body somewhere between the north and south Dakota border. He did manage to recall some pretty personal details about her children um, and some really personal details about her life. So I do suspect that he actually did murder her. Now, 19-year-old Cheryl Ann Shreya was last seen working um, at a, her own, I'm sorry, not at her own, at a, at a gas station um, in Missouri. And Tool and Lucas would both admit to the police that they killed and abducted the young woman um, around the time that she had vanished. Now, she's the only girl around that time that had been reported missing. And when he was shown a photo, um, which was actually Tool's niece and nephew, it appeared like that possibly that he wasn't telling the entire truth but when he was showed that photo of her he was able to recall a lot of details about her so 
that one's a little bit hard and a little bit difficult. But there were never there was never enough evidence to bring any charges to to him. Now a highway worker was discovered. Um, she's an unidentified woman in 1981 in Texas, and her cause of death was blunt force trauma. Uh, the victim, the only thing we know about this victim is she's known as the Grimes County Jane Doe and that she was wrapped in a plastic bag. Now, Lucas would confess to her murder, stating that he drove um, the victim from the area of Durham, North Carolina, and claiming that her name may have been Cheryl. He then claimed that he strangled her while tool, Otis Tool beat her in the head with a tire iron. And he was able to lead the police to the area in which her body had been previously found. So I'm going to end it on that note, guys, that that was our suspected victims. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to episode nine. If you like this podcast, go ahead and hit that like button, subscribe and go and listen to the other podcasts, episodes if you are new. And I hope you all have a fabulous weekend, my fellow peanuts. Bye, guys.